Hi, and welcome to Messy in the Middle. I'm your host, Jessica Lee. This is a podcast featuring real women's stories about their journey, the messy part, the trials and tribulations to get from recurrent miscarriage and infertility to baby. Join us as we talk, cry, laugh, and get unbelievably vulnerable to feel less alone in the gang that no one wants to be a part of. Hello, and welcome to episode nine of Messy in the Middle. Um, this is going to be a pretty heavy episode. Um, it was recorded back in February, so there have been some updates to her story, uh, since this was recorded and I will add a bit at the end cause I don't want to ruin anything. Um, so that you guys know where she's at, but yeah, just huge trigger warning. Um, editing this was actually quite difficult. I think because I'm now 19 weeks pregnant, um, her losses really hit home with, you know, what can go wrong and, um, you know, any, any loss is bad, but far out going through a second trimester loss would just be absolutely devastating. Um, Samantha has had 14 consecutive losses. So, yeah, three stillbirths um, and a loss of twins plus, like, early miscarriages scattered in along the way. Um, Yeah, so it is a long one. You guys (laughs) did a vote on the Instagram page and said you'd prefer a super long episode rather than um, me splitting it into two. So it is over two hours. Um, I think it's going to be well over two and a half hours altogether. Um, But it's not like all heavy. Like the first hour is probably the most difficult and then things like do lighten up a bit from there. So I hope you enjoy and I'll see you guys soon. Hi, Sam. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Do you want to start off just by telling me your age, where you're from, and a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So my name is Samantha. I'm a 43-year-old single bereaved mother from Melbourne. Um, I've been on a baby journey for 10 years, which has included 13 consecutive losses. So um, quite quite a journey. I cannot even imagine. Do you want to start your story from the beginning and how did your trying to conceive journey start? So I met a man and we fell in love, as you do. Um, and we've actually, we got engaged at about like about three months, well, quite quick. Um, and we were planning our wedding, so we weren't trying to get pregnant. Um, and we found out that we were pregnant. So once the initial shock had subsided, um, yeah, we sort of set off on that first pregnancy. Um, we were completely unaware of anything to do with around trying to conceive or anything like that. Just as most people who haven't experienced any fertility challenges, that's like a foreign world for you at that point. And we were definitely in that camp, just two people who had fallen in love and were excited to um, get married and have a family. Yeah, that blissful, bliss, being blissfully naive. Yeah, exactly. So how did that first pregnancy go? 
Uh, look, it was of all that I have had, it was one of the best or better ones. Um, it was relatively seamless. Um, we had a couple of little small blips, but nothing, you know, really right home about um, until up until 22 weeks. So at 22 weeks, um, I became quite sick and I had a lot of pain. Um, it was my first pregnancy, so I had no idea of, you know, an expectation of what was acceptable, not acceptable, good, bad, etc. Mm. Um, so the particular night that the the wheels really sort of fell off, we I went home from work early. I stopped at my GP. I explained that I had significant pain, and he said it's just your muscles stretching, um, and gave me some drops to put under my tongue. Yeah, um, I then went home and went to bed. Things continued to escalate. We called nurse on call at about 11 o'clock at night. They told me I needed to exercise more. Um, by, and it was just like ligament pain as well. Um, by the morning, I literally had no sleep. I was very grumpy, very upset, um, and still in a lot of pain. And I actually, the, the trigger for things escalating, I passed a, a single blood clot. I wasn't bleeding at all. A single blood clot about the size of a 50 cent piece. Yeah. Um, and I just said to Paul, it was a work day, but it was like eight, nine in the morning. I said, I think we need to go to the hospital. Um, we did. Um, and we were there for a while, but long story short, it ended up in um, my son being stillborn at 22 weeks. Oh, God, I can't even imagine. Mm. That must have been absolutely devastating. It just like when you think back, it's like it wasn't, it was not even on my radar that we were in a situation that was that dire. I thought we just, I've taken multiple opportunities to seek guidance on what's happening and was reassured it was nothing major, you know. So it was not even remotely in our headspace that that was a possibility. Yeah. The fact that they didn't even like bring you in for monitoring or. They didn't. I was in the, the hospital for at least a good, like, 12 hours. Um, they didn't put the belt on and monitor him once, not once. Wow. He looked back now. He's in active labour, having contractions. They just refused to entertain the thought that I was in labour because I was only 22 weeks. So they were just like, it's not even um, possible. We actually engaged with the we sent in a complaint afterwards and they were found to be neglectful, like yeah. they didn't treat properly. Yeah. So, but that doesn't change anything um, or the outcome, no. does, it, does it bring your baby back? No, it doesn't. How we, how did you cope with that? Look, um, it was one of the worst times of my life, like without a, a shadow of a doubt. Um, I say that obviously because I've now been hurt several times. Mm. So um, it's horrendous. But the first time it's foreign and it's unknown. So it doesn't get any easier, but it does become familiar, unfortunately. Mm. Um, but just incredibly broken, really broken. Yeah. Um, and then to top it off, I also got very, very sick. So I ended up, um, there was retained product, so placenta. And I ended up within 48 hours of being discharged from hospital. Um, Paul had to call an ambulance because I had developed a really, really severe infection. And I spent about about six weeks in ICU and I refused to go back to that hospital. Yeah. So the 
ambulance got approval to take me to another hospital. Um, and I ended up in, yeah, the um, ICU for about six or something weeks. Um, yeah. And I nearly died. I was, I was very, very ill. That just must have been horrific for you. Like you can't, you don't even really have the time to grieve the loss of your son and you're in hospital in ICU. Like. Yeah, I was incredibly sick. Things developed really quickly. You know, I had my parents down doing shifts and friends and because there was a period there where they actually thought I was going to die, I wasn't getting any better. Yeah. The infection just took over and I had to have several surgeries to um, sort of clean things out and try and get it out of my system. And it was a really long and tough. By the time I left the hospital, I was incredibly um, underweight. Like I was a, a shell of myself when I left. It really like, took an enormous toll. And we... um. Yeah, well, we didn't have the funeral for our son uh, for a good couple of months because I was in hospital. So literally yeah. by the time I got home, we then sort of had to start all that preparation and planning because you can't have your child in the morgue forever either. So, yeah. you know, we just he sort of explained all the time that I was incredibly unwell and we would get onto it as soon as we can. So that all sort of picked up when we got home. Mm. It was horrible, really horrible. Yeah, it really sounds it. Like, you've already left me speechless. <laughs> and I know there's so much more to come with your journey. So what did happen next? Um, we then, you know, I had to have some time. We got a ban from the hospital, so I had to have some time for my body to heal. And then, um, you know, we knew that we really wanted to, that desire to have a child and have a family was still ever so present. So we resumed trying to conceive and within a few short months we were pregnant again because at this time we were in our I was in my like early mid-30s so still a, a, a decent sort of space for trying to conceive yeah um so yeah we were very fortunate that it was reasonably swift did you um, ever find out why your son died yeah so we did have an autopsy done um it turned out that it was due to placental abruption so the placenta, uh, the reason I bled like that was the placenta had started to come away from the wall of the uterus. Right, okay. Um, look, this was all after the fact though. So had they have treated me there's um, and tried to stop labour, there's every chance that we could have had a very different outcome. But there mm -hmm. was no um, attempt to treat or remedy the situation at all. So we will never know. That's horrible. How were you feeling going into another pregnancy? Of course, I was petrified, but I guess I'm a little bit unusual in that respect. Um, I wouldn't say I bounced back, but just my desire to have, um, to parent a child and have an outside child was so fierce and so strong that it seems to be how I cope. I sort of process what's happened and then I'm like, okay, when can we resume trying to conceive? And like, that's, for me, that's how I mentally manage is by planning and, and, and figuring, figuring out a path forward. Yeah. That brings me comfort and enables me to, to be okay. So I know everyone is not that way. You know, I'm very well aware that everyone is different, but for me, that seems to be effective. Yeah. I, you would have had to come up with some kind of coping me mechanism to move forward. But... Yeah, and everyone's different, right? Some yeah. things work for some people and others for others. So. Yeah. So go through your second pregnancy. Second pregnancy was just a disaster from the get-go. We're in hospital every five minutes. I'm bleeding. 
which is constant problems and very hard. By this stage, um, our lease had come up and we were obviously spending a significant amount of time at the hospital. So we made the decision to move. We were living in Hawthorne initially and we made the decision to move to Heidelberg West to be close to our hospital. And um, we signed the lease and did all the paperwork. And then I was at work one day and we sort of tipped over. So we were um, about the 20 week mark and I'd had a lot of bleeding and a lot of problems earlier, but it had been a couple of weeks and I hadn't bled. So we were, I was feeling a little more reassured. Um, had really bad back pain at work and I went to the toilet and I had a single drop of blood on my pad, like a single, like a pinhead. Yeah. So tiny. And we, um, I got on the phone and rang Paul, my partner, and said, there was one teeny tiny drop. I feel okay. I've got a bit of backache. Do you think we should go to the hospital? And he said, it's up to you. And I said, let's give it half an hour. And he was like, okay, I'll bring you back in half an hour. Bearing in mind, by this point, we're at the hospital almost on the daily. So you start to sort of get into that position of being like, am I going to be perceived as like being over the top or a bit crazy or, you know, um, overreactive and all that sort of stuff starts to come into your, your mind when you're there that frequently because you're constantly having problems. Yeah. So we were sort of like, you know, there's nothing going to happen. Let's just give it a little bit of time. Within half an hour, my back pain was excruciating. I had no idea that that could mean like be a symptom of labour because labour with Cooper, my first son, was completely different. Yeah. So uh, if you sat them side by side, I wouldn't have not, there was no way I'd known. And I, you know, because I only got to 22 weeks the first time, um, I never attended classes or anything. I didn't get that far. So I'm not educated around what I'm looking for. So... Within half an hour, my waters broke. Oh. So I went to the head of HR and um, I just said, um, I think I'm in labour. And she said, do you want me to call an ambulance or do you want me to drive you? And as things sort of got worse, we um, we called an ambulance. Yeah. And I waited for the ambulance to arrive. And um, they sort of laid me down on the floor and they were like, yes, your waters were broken. We need to get to the hospital. They transported me to hospital. The lady from work was in another ambulance behind me and she had my handbag, which had my phone in it. So I was like, someone needs to call Paul so yeah. that he could meet us at the hospital. And um, they radioed to the other ambulance and told the lady in the other ambulance who called Paul using my phone. So he was able to get there. Um, they wouldn't take me to my hospital because my place of employment was closer to another hospital. So because it's like threatened labour or labour, yeah. like they don't want to keep you in the ambulance pretty much. They don't want you to deliver in the ambulance if they can avoid it. So they took me to what I was nearest to, which was not my personal hospital, um, and the one that I had the history and the comfort with. The other hospital was fine. They were pleasant enough, but you have to go over everything a million times. And, you know, um, they eventually got me in for a scan and they said, look, it's all going to depend what we see. So if you've just lost a bit of amniotic fluid, um, we can try and get you on bed rest, give you injections, steroids to, um, you know, quickly develop your son's lungs and, and try and hold him in there for a couple more weeks. 
yeah. so that we can reach um, viability and, and, and sort of have that approach. If he's lost all his amniotic fluid, um, that the way they described it to me was basically like he's been cling wrapped. He suddenly can't move. He goes from being able to move around to not being able to move at all. So they said, even if we could stall your labour to get to say another three weeks, so 23 weeks, if we did that, he would be born with um, major um, issues with his legs and ligaments and because he hasn't been able to move for several weeks. Yeah. So basically, if all the amniotic fluid was gone, it was not a salvageable situation and he would probably die. Well, not he, he would die. Yeah. Um, we waited for Paul to get there. We got took up. We They did the scan and they were just so apologetic and said, I'm so sorry. There's just no amniotic fluid left at all. You've lost everything. And bless Paul's heart. I will never forget this. There's some things that just stick with you forever. He said, can we do anything to put it back in? <laughs> no, like, and they said, you know, it seems like such a simple um, suggestion, doesn't it? But unfortunately not. Once it's it's come out, it's come out and, and, and that's it. So um, then obviously he went into, not Paul, um, Hudson, my son, went into fetal distress because his heart rate had shot, was in the 180s or something. And then signs of labour stopped. So I begged them to let me go deliver at my hospital with my people that knew me and had supported me previously. It took something like eight hours to get them to agree, but eventually they did. We got transported in an ambulance. By the time we arrived at Mercy, it was around 10, 30, 11 at night. They scanned me and he, he died in the brain. I'm sorry. Yeah. So he was still born two days later. I think going like a stillbirth is everyone's worst nightmare. Mm. You've just gone through two consecutively. Mm. How are you doing? How are you feeling at that point? Just devastated. You just, yeah. you cannot believe that you're back there again. It's just like, how, how has this happened again? You know, yeah. so many people go through their life not experiencing it all. And you're just sort of like, how am I, yeah, again, how has this happened again? We didn't know why at that point because everything had looked quite good and then they did lots of tests and they said basically the infection that I had after Cooper, they thought that they treated it completely but it had hung around sort of like a low-level grade infection mm. and something had triggered it, triggered it to bubble up and it just caused me to go into labour. So infection markers infection um prevention and control and um management all that sort of stuff for me became really paramount moving forward because obviously at that point we recognized that it was a really big issue yeah, yeah. so that kind of changed the trajectory for things for me and how my care was structured after that because that was you know like one of our biggest issues moving forward yeah oh heartbreaking yeah just absolutely heartbreaking horrible yeah unimaginable really it, yeah it actually is really unimaginable mm. I don't think I've heard any stories before that even come close to the devastation you've already felt and mm. I, I have an idea of still what's to come and yeah, yeah you've been through a lot 
It has. It's been a very, very, very long ride. So how was your recovery mentally and physically after Hudson's birth? Yeah, I think, as I said before, it's like, it's incredibly sad and heartbreaking, but we started to learn the pattern as in one thing that we noticed really quickly is when we got home from the hospital and when I was not deathly ill, mm. when you sort of started to started to feel a little bit more yourself and, you know, um, we would fight like cat and dog for a period, like just want to rip each other's faces off because we were completely different positions of our grief, yeah. um, you know, and physically very, very different positions. So, um, you know, I think we started to be able to identify that and then, you know, I mean, he was like, he would be going back to work and I'm like, I can barely walk. Yeah. You know, it's such a different process because after Hudson, I again developed the, the infection and I was in hospital again, right. very, very unwell. Yeah, so it was a much longer, it wasn't um, as crazy as the like, it was still a hectic amount of time in hospital, um, but because they had the history of the previous um, birth and, um, you know, illness, they had an idea on how to treat it and that sort of thing. So it wasn't completely new, which helped. Yeah, yeah they could get onto it a bit more effectively. Yeah, um, because it was to the extent that they had not seen before. So they actually used my case. They have some kind of round table where they meet heads of the top four hospitals in Melbourne. Mm -hmm. And they came to me to ask for my approval to use my case as a study, including like images from, you know, internally from all the surgeries and stuff. And because they really just hadn't come across it before. Yeah. So yeah, it was a really unique position. How are you feeling about moving into another pregnancy? Again, for me, that was part of my processing and, and being able to move forward. Of course, I'm petrified. Mm. But I have to say as well, again, it's probably a time that I can see that I could identify that um, the man and the woman have such a different role and such different emotions when it happens because we would start to try to conceive again. And as soon as we saw those two lines on a stick, I would just be, elated petrified but elated whereas Paul was just sort of like he went straight into shock and and fear yeah. there was much less joy for him in those early stages whereas I'm just like maybe this is the time you know like I would just be so I was extremely concerned but I was just so hopeful and so optimistic which sounds ridiculous I know but I don't know I just I let that take hold yeah yeah that's what helped get you through yeah yeah and I guess it's a very different position for him as well because when I was that ill I'm like not there if that makes sense I'm so ill I'm not of sound mind I'm hooked mm. up to machines I'm not you know a lot of the time wasn't talking or whatever whereas he's sitting there watching all of that yeah. um, I guess his fear would be around like that one day we might not be able to control the infection and, and that I could die yeah. Whereas I'm kind of checked out at that point because I'm that ill. So I'm just baby focused and dedicated to the cause and mm. I'm not there for that bit, you know? Yeah, yeah. Totally different experience for him when someone he, he loves is watching who could possibly die. Yeah. 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 Whereas I, we had that discussion a couple of times with the hospital. They're like, you know, 
yes, we want to save the baby, but we need to ensure that you are healthy too. And every single time, of course, I was like, if you have to choose, take the baby. Like, oh, really? That's, that's what you do when you're a mum, right? Yeah. You do anything for the, the child. So, and we were fighting incredibly hard to get that child. So, for me, it was a no brainer. If it ever came down to that point, you fight to keep the baby. Yeah. But I don't know. Paul might have had a different view, you know? Just from my personal experience, men don't really have that paternal side until the baby's actually here. So your fight, you you you'll fight from the beginning because yeah. women just have that within them. Yeah. Most of us, like we're born yeah. with that instinct to protect and procreate. And but yeah. men, that that doesn't happen till later. They don't get that bond and they don't get Absolutely. that fatherly instinct until the baby's actually here. And I guess for him having to do that without you, that would have been a really scary prospect as well. Absolutely. So when, how soon after did you decide to try again? We did get another couple of months ban because, again, I was quite ill, mm. um, which they sort of started, like they would impose the ban, but they were also softening a little bit because through this process we're getting older and the risks are getting more complicated. But I will never forget the obstetrician I had at the time. She looked at me and she said, Samantha, if I see you back here before three months has elapsed, I'm going to be very disappointed with you. We won't then find Yeah, yeah, reprimanded. So we took our time off. We also, they sent me for some pretty thorough genetic testing and Paul as well. They were trying to get a better understanding of this infection situation. And it was throughout that time that we found out that I had been diagnosed with um an immunological disorder called manospinal lectin deficiency, which basically just means, pretty simple, I'm missing a protein. Right, okay. Tons of people are missing this protein, but in a very small, like it's something like one in a thousand or something is, is deficient. Um, but in a very small group of us that are deficient, it makes us super susceptible to acute infections. Right, okay. So this suddenly explained why when I get a slight infection in certain areas, because it's not all over my body, it's just certain places of my body that respond really, really swiftly and really, really strongly. And I literally go from being maybe a little bit sick to really sick. Yeah, okay. So it was good to have the diagnosis. Um, unfortunately, there's nothing they can do to replace um, the, the protein. Mm -hmm. um, it's just more a case of managing and, and reducing a risk. Yeah. Um, so that's why after this point, my infection markers were managed or monitored so regularly. Um, and we sort of had discussions around normal protocols would kick in at, say, a certain level to manage. And I was like, I want them to kick in then down here. I don't want us to be able to reach that point. Because when I reach that point, within a couple of hours, I'm off the charts and it's too late yes so we sort of worked with the hospital to devise a plan to manage that and um, also things like I burned through a lot of antibiotics so um, they had to move me to super drug antibiotics okay. so basically stuff that's not on the PBS which they don't stock that costs a fortune that they have to get approval to ship in so once they knew that I was pregnant I would start on from like five seconds in I would start on um like really strong antibiotics and they had to pre-order those in yeah right was that at yeah. any was that out of pocket expense for you as well 
No, that actually didn't. It was all because I was all just through the clinic. Okay. Um, and merge. It was, you know, oh, we never had any in our pocket at all. Yeah, because oh, apparently super drugs are hectically expensive. So it would have been a significant investment, I believe. Mm. Yeah, I was grateful for that. Yeah, definitely. So pregnancy number three. That one was um, very interesting. Um, so we were pregnant again, which was super exciting. I was very sick, more sick than usual. Like nauseous. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, very, very quickly. And my mum did make a joke when she saw me. I think it was about nine weeks. And she was like, are you sure there's only one in there? Oh, 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 oh. Funny mum. Yeah. We don't have twins in my family um, or multiples at all. Paul has twins and triplets in his family. Right. Um, but lo and behold, we actually went on a holiday. Um, we were on a cruise ship when I was about 12 weeks pregnant. Um, and we'd had a couple of scans and everything was fine. There was one baby in there. Yep, all good, looking great. Like still had a couple of issues with bleeding and that sort of stuff, but it wasn't actually that um, problematic. The biggest problem we're having is that I was completely exhausted and very, very sick. So um, we came home from a holiday, probably not a great idea. I recommend going on a cruise when you're 12 weeks pregnant. Not a wise choice. Um, and we went to go have a scan and the lady was a bit cagey and I'm like, we'd seen a heartbeat and stuff. So I'm like, what's going on? And she left the room and then she came back and she's like, okay, so did you know that you were having twins? Oh, wow. And we're like, yeah, no. We've had umpteen scans and there's only been one in there. What's happened? Yeah. Um, so then she proceeds to scan over both of the babies separately. So she goes, here's one, here's twin A, da 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 Here's twin B. And we're like, they all look great everything's as it should because you know like 12 13 weeks there they can see so much detail already yeah so you know we're running through how great they are and I uh, again have no knowledge about twins at this point so I don't know I wasn't able to know that they were omitting information because mm. I didn't know what we needed to talk about of course so um I just meant two healthy babies and then they're like um we're just going to send you back in to talk to the obstetrician and we're like like we've done the wiser mm -hmm. and then we get in and they're like okay so your twins are monocryonic monoamniotic mono twins which basically means um what how did they describe it to us um fraternal twins have their own fridge and and live in their own house mm -hmm. so their house is their sack and the fluid and the fridge is the placenta right our twins shared not only a fridge but also a house so they're in one sack and they only have one percent okay which makes them one step away from conjoined twins so ultimately one of the highest risk twins mm. like risk wise um and also with an incredibly high um mortality rate so uh they said normally up to 75 percent of the twins die really that high and how are you feeling at that? oh I was just like how like first of all there's two which I said a few curse words at mm. 
Um, and then I was just like, how is it that of all the options for twins there is, how have we got these super high risk, super, because they're like, you know, okay, we need to give you all the information. Um, you can't deliver vaginally, so you'd have to have a C-section, um, which makes sense because they're attached to the same when you think about it, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's major risks um, in regards to their well-being. So there was twin-to-twin transfusion, the way they explained it. been a while, but hopefully I get it right. Basically, each twin sort of like plugs into the placenta, but there's no um, method in how that happens. So often what happens is one's over here, one's over here. They don't get equal distribution of the nutrients and what have you from the placenta. So that's why you end up with, say, twin A that's getting 75% of the nutrients, super big, super plump, super healthy. Twin B that's getting 25% is small, is ailing, etc. Okay. The issue with when that occurs, when they're momos, is that if you have twins in separate sacs, if one is ill or passes away, it's completely separated from the other. Yeah. Because they're in the sack together, if one gets sick and dies, the other will die too. Oh, okay. Unless you're in a position where you can deliver incredibly quickly at a gestation that they're viable. Yeah. If something happens when they're earlier, it's not salvageable. Right. That must yeah. have been so hard to hear. Well, they actually went on to counsel us. They said, given how um, your history and how high risk you are, they actually counseled us at that point to terminate. Oh, okay. So we went home. We rang our families. We had a chat and it was never on the cards for us. Um, we were just like, at this point, they're two healthy babies. We ride this out. And see where it goes. Okay. It was never an option. But we took a few moments because we were very shocked by it. that's a lot of information to receive in like a small space of time. Yeah, definitely. You know, there's two, there's not one, there's two after having so many scans and there being one. That is so crazy that it was not picked up before that. Because apparently, because they're in the same sack, they sit on top of each other. So they scan whoever's on the top. And that's exactly what had happened. They just kept scanning the top baby and it was, they did just a normal scan first and then they were like, something doesn't add up. The measurements don't align to before you went on the cruise. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. And that's when they're like, let's do another one. They're like, lo and behold, they swapped positions. Oh, okay. Mm. Wow, that's so interesting. Yeah, Yeah, just the things you learn. Yeah. (laughs) How did that, yeah, what happened next? I was really struggling like I was sleeping in my car on my lunch break I was just really struggling about 14 weeks um we went to hospital um just and again it wasn't because I was bleeding or having issues I was just absolutely exhausted um and it was at that point the hospital said maybe it's time for you to call it and maybe you need to stop working oh okay pretty um scary to hear because I was the bigger earner in our relationship so knocking my salary out at 14 weeks mm. was it would, it would have huge impacts so and was never part of the plan so mm. um but we sort of had a chat about it and I there was just no no way so to give you an idea of how my body was coping when I fell pregnant with the 20s I was 71 kilos they died at 15 weeks and I was 61 kilos Oh, wow. Mm, I dropped wow. 10 kilos, even though yeah. I had two twins. Yeah. 
just, it, I have nothing but the utmost respect for anyone who carries any kind of multiples because the the toll on your body, it's it's absolutely hectic. Like singleton is hard work. Mm. Multiples, it's just they drain the life out of you, honestly. Yeah. It's incredible. The sickness is way more. The fatigue is way more. It's just hectic. So um, we sort of accepted that I'd stop working. Um, you know, we'd have monitoring and um, about a week later, one day I woke up and I said, Paul, when I'd had the losses previously, I sort of had pain in the, the same spot. And I woke up in the morning and I said, I've got pain in that spot. Mm. And they're too early to feel them kicking or whatever at this gestation at 15 weeks. So we went to hospital and we waited for our obstetrician. She was in the delivery um, suite. Um, we waited for almost eight hours for her to come down and scan us because no one else would sort of touch us because we were incredibly high risk and very tricky. Um, and she came down, I'll never forget, and she said, oh, haven't you seen the babies yet today? And we were like, no. And she's like, okay. So she actually took us up to radiology, which was completely closed, turned on all the lights, popped me up on the bed because in, um, Emerge, the scanner is nowhere near as good quality. Yeah. Um, so up we go. And lo and behold, um, she scanned twin A and you could just see like there's no movement. It's just it's there, but it's still. And there's, you know, she's trying to find the heartbeat and trying to find the heartbeat. And I was like, oh, you know, and she said, I'm so sorry. Twin A has, has passed away. Like almost burst into tears and then we're like what about twin b and we went to go and have a look at twin b exactly the same mm. so and in the scan you could see they're literally like lying on top of each other just mm. motionless um and so what had turned out which was one of the major risks that they did present to us is cord entanglement so because they are in the same uh sac and same fluid they're twirling around a lot, tangled their cords, yeah, sucks okay. off the nutrients, they die. So the further along you get, that risk is reduced because there's a bit less space for them to be as twirly. But yeah, 15 weeks, unfortunately, our girls passed away. I think anyone who does have a multiple pregnancy will tell you that there is a period of complete shock. Yeah. And like distress because it's it's a big deal to go from one to two or three, yeah. um, financial consequences, life consequences, whatever. And I think, you know, we as everyone else did go through that and had great concerns about how we could cope. And then to come to a point of acceptance, I remember a couple of days earlier we watched there was just happened to be a special on like Channel Nine or Seven or whatever about twins. So there we were. I can see exactly where we were, laying on a bed, watching it, you know, just so nervously excited. But it just um, it didn't work out, unfortunately. Oh, God, I'm sorry. I um, have always wanted to have a daughter, so we didn't find out till after they died, but they were, they, we knew they were identical. So yeah. they were identical to girls. So that was incredibly tough for me because the, the other births I'd had were boys. And it's not that I, you know, I love the boys too, but my dream yeah. has always been I'm a girly girl and I wanted to be a dance mum. So, you know, it was just 
and at that point as well you, you've got to remember that we just lost two boys and then we'd been handed two girls so it just felt yeah it, yeah you know like it was just the perfect answer to everything just yeah. an, an amazing blessing but unfortunately they couldn't stay have you received any counseling to process grief and what everything that you've been through yeah we were heavily um affiliated with sans for quite a period of time we were very active in that community and supporting them as an organization and you know we met other couples and sort of built bonds with other people and we had a couple of sessions um we also uh had found a fair bit of comfort in um a pastoral care worker at mercy we, we became quite close to her because she one time she was away one of the things actually i think she was on holidays when they had passed away and i had to have surgery and stuff and um they sent in someone else so they've obviously got a default process if someone presents and a baby passes away or babies pass away they send in someone from pastoral care and this guy mm. came in and we're like we're so sorry <laughs> but we'll wait for annie <laughs> yeah so um we did you know so she's been peppered throughout our process for the entire time um she was at our last son's funeral so yeah she was an incredible support and you know sort of um person of knowledge and wisdom that just must be so tough going into a pregnancy like with a plan as well kind of knowing what went wrong the first two times yeah but then yeah very unfair very unfair what happened next um then we in well in between all these we've also had a grand total of eight miscarriages so they're kind of peppered throughout all these years okay yeah then it took a while for us to get really a, like a viable pregnancy the next pregnancy was um 2018 so we've lost three years in there of trying and losing and trying and losing mm -hmm. um probably most of those occurred between I'll probably say around five to nine weeks somewhere in there majority of them so but then you know and we all in that time we went and saw specialists and you know talked about surrogacy and donor eggs and all sorts of things and were you ready to go down that path yet or were you still determined to try for yourself no because I was, I was still getting pregnant so yeah. I sort of went you know I'm still in my, my 30s like late 30s by this stage so mm -hmm. still getting there and I was adamant that whilst we had the ability to achieve ourselves I wanted to do that because of course there's nothing there is nothing wrong with any of the additional pathways and I'm so grateful that they all exist but if you ask anyone <laughs> If they can choose what they get, of course you're going to pick to carry your biological child yourself. Yeah, of course. So, you know, whilst we still had some opportunity to do that and it was technically still happening, it wasn't working, but it was happening, mm -hmm. I wanted to pursue that. Yeah. But it did plant a seed and start discussions about those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, I was booked in, I think for, um, a surgery to have a look and see how things were going because it had been a while since we'd got anything sort of viable and then yeah we found out that we were pregnant so um that was pretty exciting you know obviously by this time I say exciting but there's there's a real fear each time now yeah, because you're just racking up losses at a rate of knots like 
it's it's hope and there's hope and optimism but there's also a hell of a lot of fear as well so this was Noah now Noah was we had a couple of blips and a couple of problems um a few bleeds and things like that but we'd had more troublesome pregnancies we did we were doing okay um you know because by this time now we live close to the hospital you know it's much easier less pressure on Paul to be you know running back and forth back and forth we're literally five minutes down the road um so it um yeah it was look I would never say it was seamless like I was in hospital at about 16 weeks because I developed a bad infection so I was stuck to an IV for about a week um trying to you know, reduce the levels and get things under control so that I wasn't going to go into threatened labor. And I was petrified, absolutely yeah. petrified. Yeah. Um, but I had, I took comfort from the fact that the people that I was surrounded by, because Paul had to go to work, of course, mm. the people that I was surrounded by were the same people that I'd known for many years and that had been there, you know, when my babies had been birthed and, mm. and things like that. So for me, that brought me comfort. Um, you know, I'm a couple of years in with Annie at this stage. Again, it doesn't change the outcome, but from my perspective, it can um, it can have a real impact on your journey and the process when there is those services that are truly, you know, supportive and helpful and people that actually are really invested in your journey and care about your well-being and your baby's well-being. Yeah, yeah they were really really great um but we yeah we definitely had a few blips we get to the dreaded 22 weeks and Paul came home from work one night and I said I had a shooting pain down one side of my like my tummy and we we know by this point he's like do you want to go to mercy and I said I think we have to Mm. so it was like let's just have some dinner because we're going to be there for at least eight hours yeah like five six o'clock so like let's go some dinner down and then go down yeah so we did i'm not bleeding i've just got this very concerning pain yeah so we have some dinner we go down we're waiting again we had to wait close to eight hours before we got our lady because she was in birth suite again and she's actually going on holidays like to europe the next day and she had been with me since my first hcg beta which was 15. So for any women out there who've done countless theaters, they'll know how low 15 is. Yes. And they'll know that that was a very early, early, early beginning. And she literally was the person that called me to say, yes, you're pregnant. Your, your beta was 15. And I'm like, that's too low. <laughs> you know, so she'd yeah. been with us this whole time. I waited for her. She came in. She scanned me. His heart rate was great. He's really happy. She says, do you want me to do a speculum and have a look at your cervix? Now, from an infection perspective, we we're trying to reduce the amount of speculums we're doing because each time they do that, you're opening up the cervix, which opens it up to infection. Yep. So I said to her, again, one of the things that I'll never forget, I'm happy if you're happy. Are you happy? And she said, I'm happy. Mm-hmm. So we agreed that we would leave things as they were. The shooting pain had stopped. His heart rate was good. He was very active. We got home about 2.30 in the morning. Pretty wide. Probably takes you about an hour to get to sleep. Yeah. We go to sleep. I wake up at 6.30. I went to the toilet and Paul was asleep. 
and I was in active labour. Oh, no. So I sat on the toilet holding on to the towel rail and I was just so upset. I screamed for Paul um, and he's like, what, what, what? And I said, I'm in, I'm in labour. Like I'm, I'm feeling like I need to push. Mm. So, um, but my waters hadn't broken at the stage. Okay. So he called an ambulance. Ironically, we're five minutes from the hospital and the ambulance took forever to get to the house. Yeah. But just, <laughs> some of the things I, you remember, I know I keep saying that, but it's true. In this crazy, crazy scenario, it's like I can hear him on the phone with the ambulance lady and he's, <laughs> I could have piggybacked her to the hospital by now because we're that close. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And time is of the essence because mm. I'm in labour here and we want to stop the labour. Yes. So, um. You know, and they're like, they're on their way, they're on their way. And I'm just sitting there holding onto the rail. Um, did she check, had... sorry, did she check the length of your cervix when she scanned to check bubbles okay? No. no. Okay. I suppose it hadn't um, been an issue in the past, so. Mm, probably should have done. Mm. Um, and I can hear the ambulance um, lady saying, okay. You need to lay her down on the floor. And Paul's like, you need to lay on the floor. And I'm like, I honest to God felt if I got up from the toilet that he was coming out and I was petrified to move. Yeah. And then I was like, I'm not getting on the floor. I'm not getting up. I'm not getting up. And she kept saying, you need to lay her down on the floor. And Paul goes, yep, she's on the floor. <laughs> Just the stupid things, you know what I mean, that you remember. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know? And then I said to him, oh, I said, I'll never forget. I was like, I can hear them. They're coming. I can hear the sirens. They're really faint, but they're on their way. And then they came in and, you know, we obviously explained the scenario and they were like, okay. And I remember saying, can, do you think we can save my baby? And they're like, we don't know. You know, you have to get to the hospital and figure out what's going on. But it's good that your waters haven't broken, you know. Yeah. So, um, yeah, they transported me to hospital and, um, as I was going through the doors, my um, my lady was there. I just burst into tears, like we saw her four hours ago. Yeah. And I said, like, oh my God, Lauren. And she grabbed my hand and she's like, I know, I know. And I was like, we need to stop this, you know. And she's like, we're gonna we're gonna give it a try. Um, but I could tell as well, like what was happening with my body that things had obviously progressed. I could feel like I was ready to push. Mm. I didn't want to push and I didn't push but I'm like all fibers in your being are telling me to push yeah yeah so I knew like we were obviously reasonably advanced I, I suspected so they gave me I don't know what it's called whatever it's pill is to try and stop the labor and did nothing um and then they had a look and she yeah she came and said I'm really sorry um but you are a couple of centimeters dilated and I can see the Membranes, so there's no redeeming the situation. He's going to form. So she was due to finish. Um, I think it was around 8 a.m. because um, she was flying to Europe that night or the next morning, yeah. and um, she actually stayed. Like she finished her shift, but she stayed and delivered my son, who was born at 11:41 in the morning. Um, she was just like I can remember her just sitting there in the corner of the chair and just just being there and waiting and watching and just being there. 
sorry, which I was very grateful for because it was horrible. Um, so he was alive when I started labour because all my boys had been born breech because they weren't ready to come. So um, apparently, I Paul heard them say it, but I did not. When um, his legs were coming out, he was still kicking. But it's actually really hard to birth babies that aren't ready to be born because your body hasn't done all the things that it needs to do, like your pelvis and everything. So um, it's actually really hard work. So it took quite a number of hours. And by the time I actually delivered him, he had passed away. It's just unimaginable. The worst, the worst bit of all was that they had said to us, given your circumstances, if he's healthy and of good size, we'll take him at 23 weeks and we will resuscitate and we'll fight to make this work. Oh. And we were 22. So we were one week short. Yeah. You know, we had an appointment booked to go and tour NICU and, and talk about what was going to happen and how it was all going to go the very next week because we were preparing for a 23-weeker. And the end result was that there wasn't anything wrong. He was perfectly healthy. It was my body. So once you go into labour early, you become predisposed to doing so in the future. And because this was my third time, they're like, your body is just so used to going into labour at 22 weeks now that it's like 22 weeks, off we go. Nothing. He was great. Absolutely perfect. That must be so hard to come to terms with and accept. I was furious. I was so angry. Like I just, we all thought that he was actually going to make it and he was the one. We were never expecting a full termer at all. Yeah. But we all believed that he was, because he was so healthy, we were having, for us, not as many problems. Yeah. You know, um, I would... I would never say any of my pregnancies were easy. None of my pregnancies have been easy, but of all of them, he was actually okay. Like we, I don't know whether it was experience and we became used to things and the challenges, if we learned to ride the waves a bit better, but he was, it was not as bad, you know? Yeah. So he was particularly hard because we all did think he was going to make it. Yeah, it's just devastating. I've got no other words and I'm so sorry that you've been through all of that. You just sort of think, like, why me? I went through a period where I was like, am I a bad person? Is this happening because I've done bad things? And you think about all the times that you've, you know, been rude to someone or you've done something you shouldn't have and rationally your brain knows that that's not the case. But that's the sort of stuff that, goes through your mind in those moments you know am I being punished yeah I'm not religious but you know am I being punished because I'm not a good person just because it was just too much too much heartbreak too much loss yeah to get so far within your pregnancies and to have it all of them yeah yeah far out yeah let alone you know by this point you've got to remember where you know what, five years in, mm. the strain that it's put on us financially, the strain it's put on our jobs with time off work, yeah. um, the impacts to our relationships, yeah. um, our social circle, our families, like it's a, 
by this point, it's a very heavy burden. How were people around you? Like, how were they treating you? And um, It's a bit of a mixed bag. You get people that retract and disappear because they can't cope and it's too much. Yeah. Um, you get people that offer support and love. You get people that just don't know what to say, especially given the quantity of losses. Mm. You know, yeah. they were good with the first one or two, but now we're in just crazy town and, and they just are at a loss. Yeah. Um, so it was quite varied. You know, we were fortunate that we had some people that were really, really supportive, like a small circle that were incredible. Yeah, it certainly wasn't everyone. It's It was a real mixed bag, really. And how are you coping? Did you have friends around you falling pregnant and having babies? Of course. Yeah. I got into the habit of I would decline all the baby shower invitations, but as soon as I got the invitation, I'd make up like a baby um, box or a baby basket and just like a huge one with so much stuff, overcompensating for the fact that I couldn't attend. And I wanted to be like, you're amazing because you've married, managed to carry a child to term and deliver it safely and healthy, which in my world is just nothing short of a miracle. Mm. So I'm so impressed with what you've done and I'm so happy for you, but I cannot be there because if I be there, I will ruin your day. I will cry. I just can't do it. I did one and I had to leave. It was horrible and I felt so bad, so I never did another one. Yeah, I'm sure like an epic basket of love. Yeah. <laughs> Surely they must have had understanding as to why you couldn't attend and it would have just I been think so, so much. Yeah. I hope so. I hope that along because there's been quite a few and I hope that along the way they can understand that, you know, it's a very it's a hard, it's a really hard place to be in because it's like grief and joy can completely coexist. Mm. I am so happy for you. I'm so joyful for you. But that brings up a whole lot of feelings for me. Yeah. Who's been pregnant umpteen times and never got a baby shower because all my babies have died. So yeah. it's not about them at all. No. I mean, as in the negative side of it, the happiness is there and I'm so happy for you. And I am in awe of you. I honestly am. Any woman who can, I my hat off to you. Yeah. Because it's hard work. Um, but yeah, just the the emotions and the feelings that it creates for me and I could say I'll be fine and I'll go but I know that's bullshit yeah and I don't want to ruin that day no I <laughs> I had my last miscarriage in March last year and one of my best friends waited to tell me that she was pregnant and we'd always talked about being pregnant at the same time and that was just that made my loss harder because yeah. you know she was pregnant and I stupidly agreed to help organize her baby shower with mm. one of her other best friends and I thought I would be okay and mm. holy hell that was one of the hardest days I've had to experience mm. like the amount of times I just had to try and keep my shit together and not cry yeah, yeah. far out I got in the like once it was over I got in the car yeah. and I just bawled my eyes out yeah, it's incredibly hard. It's really fucking hard, yeah. You know what I figured for me is that the trigger that really sends me over the edge, mm. it's the, the joy and the happiness. Like when they, you know, have the like, we're sitting in a circle and she started opening presents and everyone's like, ooh, ah, ooh, I lost it. Yeah. And I was like, why does that make me so upset? And I'm like, you know what? Because there's never been any joy around the arrival of any of my babies because it's 
they're going to die if they're not dead already. So it just, that, I don't necessarily think it's jealousy. I just think it's like, that's not what my experience has been for yeah. that process. So when I am looking at that, I'm just like, you know, overwhelmed. It just, it was just way too much. And I just yeah. completely lost it. Mm. I was all like, I wasn't like you. I was all loving it. <laughs> and I'm doing it because I cared for the person. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. At that point, that's what tipped me over the edge. Yeah. Just, and, you know, after that point, I was apologetic and I just never did it again. And I mm. have legitimately only been in 10 years to one more. And that was like last year. Yeah. I think you have to know your limits and where you need to set your boundaries for your own sanity and mental health. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, it's such a complex situation and mm. there's, if there's an expectation that you need to attend or that, you know, it's not um, suitable for you to be feeling that way, I would be suggesting that you uh, reconsider your friendships because I don't think anyone should put anyone in that position you know anyone who's experienced loss it's, it's an incredibly big ask some people can do it it's a yeah. personal thing yeah um but yeah I don't think there should be if you wanted to what by all means go you know mm. but an expectation I think is not good no I totally agree I think the only thing that made it really hard for me hosting this baby shower is that it was such a stark reminder that my baby was never coming mm. like because she was due like a month after me mm. it's like I should be having my baby shower and yeah yeah it hurts it yeah really just hurts. those milestones just really made it clear that oh I lost my baby and it's never yeah. going to be here. Yeah. And again, it's nothing to do with her. Like, no. I'm so happy for you. I, I, my heart is so happy for you. Yeah. It's just what that triggers for me, given my experience. Yeah. It brings all that back and more. Mm. Oh, so what happened? That was um, Noah you named him, didn't you? Yeah. So he was uh, stillborn on the 6th of October, 2018. Mm. So, yeah, you know, in amongst them, we've had quite a number of miscarriages. We then paid almost $40,000 for donor eggs because the hospital was like, maybe part of this is because you're old now, because you're having so many miscarriages. So maybe you should try some donor eggs. What a good idea. Um, $40,000. Almost $40,000, yeah, by the time we shipped them in and did the cycles and stuff. Wow. And we got, so a 10-egg package. They came from Ukraine. They came from Ukraine technically, but the clinic was in the UK. Right. Okay. Um, Is that you know, like typical practice to ship them in from overseas? Like there's nothing within Australia? There is. But so once you start talking um, donor products or assisted reproductive technologies in Victoria, let's say, because Victoria is yeah. where I am, Things get very messy. Right. We have um, a governing board called VATA here um, who manage anything which falls under that basically and you have to get their approval to be able to do anything. Oh, okay. So it adds to the process. They can say no. Mm. Um, it elongates time. You know, like when I spoke to them, we were trying to ship some stuff in and um, just to even get my case heard was like a three, four-month wait. 
Yeah, okay. Because the board yeah. meets once a month. Yeah. So it was when we decided, you know, we did the research and we found out that ACT has the most lax donor laws in Australia. So then we went, let's ship our stuff to ACT and do our IVF in ACT. Okay. Make our life easier. Yeah. Um, and not waste time because we yes. don't have time to waste. We've exactly. been on this process, this cycle already for many, many years. Mm. So, um, yeah, we ended up doing, uh, we did a double embryo transfer in oh, November or December, maybe early December 2019, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got pregnant. Um, we're like, oh my god, is it one? Is it two? Yeah, my pregnancy lasted for seven days. Oh no, before I started to bleed, and you know, like I was bleeding right through Christmas, so that Christmas was just horrendous. We were away, it was just the worst ever, yeah. just absolute devastation because. This at that point was the most money that we'd sort of invested in a single effort. So it was just, and that's a lot of money. We're not, we're not rich people. So, um, and we, for our money, we only got out of the 10 egg package, we got three embryos. And so that was two of them gone. Oh, wow. So that was just horrible. Sorry. Yeah. Was there, could you not have done IVF to retrieve your own eggs and get testing on those? We did, but the hospital had said, we think maybe because you're having so many early miscarriages now, we'd say like early miscarriages are normally aligned to egg quality. Right, okay. So they were like, here's your golden ticket. Just yeah. go and get young, beautiful eggs. And we're like, okay. <laughs> So we did. We did as we were told, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. And it was just a gross waste of money. Mm, um, that's so disappointing. Oh, and, you know, anyone who has had any experience with IVF, just getting to transfer, there's so much time, effort, um, drugs that are involved in the lead-up tests, you know. Like mm. by the time you're at transfer, you know, even though the ride's only begun in regards to then you're like, are we pregnant, beaters, all that sort of stuff. But just yeah. get to that point is hectic. Yeah. It's a lot. And as people who had managed to get pregnant so many times previously, this was just like, we're doing all this just to get on the starting blocks. Mm. Like, what is this? This is like crazy hectic and heavy, you know, and then to be like seven days later, if the dream is gone, it yeah. just—it was a whole different kind of um, grief and heartbreak. Very, very different to what we'd experienced before. And I think that's because, yeah, that was the most money and effort that we'd done. Normally, we're like, and I'm not minimising like tracking your cycles and trying to conceive is like regularly and ongoingly is rough. It really is, and it takes mm-hmm. toll on your relationship and all that sort of stuff. But it's so, so different to the strains that are associated with IVF. So, um, yeah, it was just that was a really soul-destroying. I think we were also very naive and we were like, they said this is going to work, this is our golden ticket, this is going to fix all our problems, Yeah, which was very, very stupid. (laughs) But what else do you have left except hope at this point? 
and you trust yeah you trust mm. in the medical professionals if they say this is the solution you're like radio we're doing it and don't yeah. worry let's let's do it they said this will work so yeah. you know we just we were so naive we had no idea you know it gave me a whole new respect for anyone like you know I know, know women who've been doing IVF for many many years and some of them have never been pregnant and I am just like obviously you know I'm in the world that I am and it's very different and again I have nothing but the utmost respect for the warrior women that continue to you know pursue that avenue because it is grueling yes for a chance you're not even a guaranteed pregnancy let a guaranteed delivery exactly. just a chance. for a shot yeah that's yeah. you've got to have a lot of desire to um to be able to go down that road yeah you really do so yeah. you've got one embryo left from this pack yeah we started again talking about other options and by this stage covid was around all right, so yeah. we tried a couple of times to get across to Canberra to do the last embryo transfer, but the borders were closed. And mm. so we started to go down the road of surrogacy um, and we were doing it in Georgia, as in next to Russia. Oh, okay. Um, shipped for sperm across to Georgia, joined the clinic, picked out egg donor. Um, you know, that was looking at, to be about 85 grand. We'd have to spend about three months in Georgia post-delivery to go to court to get a parentage order yeah. established, which Paul was not a fan of three months. I wasn't, I wouldn't say I was a fan, but I'm clearly by this point, I'm pretty dedicated to the cause and I'm like, whatever there is, we'll find a way to mm. get through it. So, you know. How um, did you go about choosing a surrogate with it being in another country? They do that for you. The clinic right. does that for you. Um, but you have control over the egg donor. Okay. So it was basically like a lookbook. Yeah. You, could, you went through and picked, you know, physical characteristics. Um, it was a bio yeah. um, and some photos. Um, and, you you know, you'd be looking for a certain look or, um, you know, a certain level of education or whatever it was that floats your boat. Okay. So we did, and then I found out that Paul was seeing someone else behind my back. Oh, no. So we separated. So his family is still in Georgia. Okay. <laughs> so you hadn't even gotten through to, like, the transfer no, process, right? Thank God, actually, to be honest, like, because obviously that would have made things way more complex. Mm. Um. We just basically stopped everything. Okay. Everything froze. Um, you know, and then I've got the issue of like we're actually separating, he leaves the house, where am I gonna live? You know, all mm. the things. Um You're not going through enough. Yeah. yeah. And I like I definitely think and I don't know if people understand this, I think probably someone who's parted ways with their um baby daddy if their baby has passed away will get it the feelings that I felt like I was obviously incredibly angry with him like very angry but to lose him as well was just it felt worse than any of the babies because 
all of the babies and the journey that we'd been through, we'd been through together. No one else, not my parents, not his parents, not his brother, not my best friend who's been there every time I've lost the baby. Mm. It's not the same. The only person who's actually been there and been through it all, the really, really nitty-gritty of it, was him. Mm. So us separating just was the worst for me. Like it absolutely broke me. I think for a good probably six months I was I was really a mess. Yeah. Um I had to move out during hard lockdown, mm. find a house, just it was really, really, really bad. It was probably the lowest point of my life because as well we sort of go the only thing you have when your child dies is milestone dates and memories and all of those milestone dates and memories had been with Paul yeah and suddenly Paul's gone and I had to do those it was like just overnight I became a single mother and I just was like that I found that for the first year I found that so hard to do those dates without him and I was so angry at him that he left me and made me do those alone because that's to me, those dates and those memories are so sacred. Yeah. So sacred. And I was just like, I don't know what happens between us. How could you move on from our children? You know, that was that was a really, really hard time in my life. Really hard. And then on top of that, you know, by this stage, I'm 40. And I'm like, clearly I'm fertility challenged yeah I really felt like us parting ways meant that I had sealed my fate and I would never get an earthside child and that just made me so upset yeah um especially after everything you know I I kept going all these years because I actually believed that we would get there and I know that must sound crazy to people but you don't if I thought the end was going to be the sad, you know, saga of loss after loss after loss. I would have stopped years ago. Yeah. I actually believed in my heart that we were going to somehow one day make it to the end and have a positive outcome, and that was what kept me going. So to then be in this position where I was like, I don't have a partner. I'm not good at having babies. I'm in my 40s. I'm not going to. I'm not going to get this. That's it. It's over for me. It was just incredibly confronting. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I spent a couple of months really soul-searching because this is the thing. I knew at this point if I was to go down the path of any assisted reproductive technologies um, outside of what I'd already utilised, I know at this point they're incredibly long. They're incredibly expensive. Um, it's a big commitment, way bigger than anything that we've done. Mm. You know, and I send posts or things that you remember. I remember putting posts up on Facebook saying, how far is too far when you're talking about matters of the heart? Like, and people are like, what do you mean? And I'm like, how much money is too much money for a baby? Yeah. When do you stop? How do you know when you've reached that point? You know, so it was, I think it was about about six months that I really sort of 
went back and forth and can I afford to do one of these options because it's so much money mm. um you know can I it's one thing to say I'll have a baby alone can I actually have a baby like can I raise a child alone and you know am I actually going to be able to do it because I've just spent the best part of a decade doing it in a team this is a very different situation yeah. so there was a lot of all that going on um I also managed to convince him to let me have our final embryo and I promised and agreed to sign a contract to say if it was successful and I managed to carry to a viable gestation that I would not pursue him for any kind of financial compensation nor would I ask him to be a parent um, and I managed to get him to do that so I travelled to Canberra and did the last embryo transfer and because it was my last embryo the clinic went pretty hard and like doubled all my hormones. So I was like a crying mess. Mm. It was very bad. And it literally made, that was the point where I was like, I thought I would just get donor sperm and do more IVF. That cycle was the defining point for me where I went, I actually don't want to do this again. Okay. I don't want to have another round of IVF. Um, it was so much and it's also it's very different doing it as a single woman. Yeah. Like I would not say that Paul was overly helpful throughout the process when we were together, but it's just different having mm. someone, can you grab me the bucket? I'm really nauseous from the meds. Um, can you, you know, get me some pads because, you know, I'm on pessaries and I'm a bit of a mess. Just all the, the smaller things that, really made a difference to the process and then I was like like I'm really alone in this mm. there's no one to help me there's no one to you know do anything like I'm completely alone and it was so hard and so horrible um I was fortunate that some friends traveled with me to Canberra to do the transfer so I didn't have to drive but it just was really hard yeah. and I'm incredibly emotional because of all the hormones and um it didn't take. Oh. So it was all for nothing. It didn't take. More money, more time. Yeah. You know, I'd done rel relatively well and managed to keep things sort of under wraps at work. But then when I was in the height of all the hormones, there was like four or five times where I was just in a meeting and I just became so overwhelmed with emotion because something was said. There was nothing to do with the heavy or whatever. But I was so hopped up that I would just have to excuse myself and burst into tears. And I'm like, it's creeping out. Like, I try and manage it and manage life. And I'm like, it's now, like, creeping out and seeping into other mm. things, you know. I just had no control. And that's when I was like, I don't, I don't want to do this again. Yeah, you'd reached your threshold. Yeah, and I think as well because I was like, I've done better myself many times you know yeah. it's not like it's producing a great outcome for me like it's yeah. shit it's yeah. a lot of work it's a lot of money it's emotionally physically grueling and I'm not getting even remotely close to what I've achieved myself yeah so it was it was fairly easy for me to say this is not for me so I sort of shut the door on that um and then I started to revisit discussions with um a gentleman called Sam Everingham, who runs Surrogacy Australia. Okay. Um, 
he assists people doing surrogacy. Um, a lot of them are based in Australia, but you know, I said straight up, you know, like, what's the deal with doing it here? And mm. he was like, can be done, of course, but he just sort of went for you. Don't know if I'd recommend the average time from start to finish. So from signing on to holding a baby in your arms was four to five years. Oh, wow. There's a lot of red tape here. Yeah, okay. So he sort of went, if you're happy to invest that kind of time, he goes, look, not lying, could come in lower. Could come in lower. Could be higher. Mm. And you've got to remember at this stage, I'm almost a decade in and mm. I'm in my 40s. Yeah. And I was just like, I don't have five years to give to this. And I don't want to wait another five years. I don't want to be having a child at almost 50. Yeah. So it was a no-brainer for me. Australia was out. Yeah, okay. So uh, through Surrogacy Australia, did they source a surrogate for you? No, no. They're just telling me basically what my options are. Right, okay. So then I said to him, okay, if we knock Australia out, what other options do I have? And he said, honestly, as a single woman, you don't have a lot. There's a lot more available options for hetero couples or married couples, mm-hmm. but a lot of countries are not supportive of single women. So he said, Greece sits at about 150 grand for a singleton, USA, 250 grand for a singleton, and Canada, 250 grand for a singleton. Those were my options. Wow. So I said, off to Greece we go as a person who's never been to Europe at all yeah (laughs) but my best friend is Greek so you know yeah that's close enough (laughs) um and so the process started you know I found like an online group who a Facebook group where there's people who were in the midst of doing it in Australia there's also people outside of Australia as well but Mm. um you know people who'd come back and have their child like they came back during COVID because they started before COVID um you know I had to figure out a way to find $150,000 you know I just I guess I want to flag a lot of people think once they hear that I've gone down this path that I'm wealthy I am not I don't earn 150 grand in a year Mm. and I'm alone I rent I have a house that I bought when I was a young girl and I'm just very fortunate that it had equity in it so I then went to the bank and set about refinancing and I took $100,000 cash out of my house yeah. um, and I've saved the rest. So I'm not wealthy at all and it has been a really big, outside of buying that house, this is the mm-hmm. second biggest financial investment of my life. Yeah. Um, so that's not lost on me that it is a hectic amount of money and that's assuming everything goes to plan. Mm-hmm. You know, when things deviate off the plan or don't go as they should, there's extra costs. So that's an average ballpark situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I refinanced my house, took 100k out. Once I knew that I had that money, then I was prepared to sign because if I didn't know where I was going to get the money, once you sign the contract you're in, you've got to start paying and all that sort of stuff. And I just was very hesitant. I could have done it a few months earlier, but I was like, I need to get my ducks in a row first. Yeah. I've got no one backing me up here. If something happens and I don't have the money, I don't have the money and I've signed a legal contract saying that I do and I will pay. pay. Yeah. So I was really clear on getting my ducks in a row first. If not having it all, but having a clear idea that the other portions would come from. Mm-hmm. House was refinanced. 
signed my contract, emailed like emailed their clinic, said, "Yep, let's do this." I'd in the interim, I'd researched, I'd spoken, you know, tried to understand how it all went. I also met up with um, at Christmas time. I met up with um, did a Melbourne meet of people who were either in the process or had completed the process and had their children. Okay. So in Melbourne. Yep. Which was really great. That really put a fire in my belly to be like, because there was a couple of single women and then there was families as well. And I was like, all of these babies have been born over in Greece. All of these women and, and men families have had significant struggles and have got these children through this process. So it just, it was a very, I was very emotional. It was a very emotional meet and greet. Um, but it definitely put a fire in my belly to say, I want to fight for this and I, I want to do it. So I, yeah, I emailed the clinic, signed my contract. We got things moving. Um, it's an interesting process. I should also put a disclaimer up saying as a single woman, the only way that you can do surrogacy in Greece is if you are unable to achieve parenthood yourself. So it's not, you can't elect to do it just because you don't want to be pregnant. Yeah. Uh, so part of my application that went to court for approval involves my full medical history and a report that basically demonstrates that I've given it a red hot go yeah. and I can't do it myself. So, and I think there's a lot of concerns around surrogacy, particularly commercial surrogacy, where there's payment involved mm-hmm. um, and about it not being, you know, a bit, a bit disingenuous and that sort of thing. And I'm like, well, it's not a free-for-all and they're not doing it for everyone. They're doing it to help out women and families who can't actually achieve it themselves, knowing full well if they would open the floodgates, they could make a ton of money um, just taking anyone who wants to do it, but they've chosen to have this avenue only, which I think is is, is nice. And I think yeah. it, it makes it more genuine, yeah? They're yeah. there, they are, you know, I talk to my patient liaison, Shirley, every week. And, you know, everyone that she's dealing with has a story. They've Mm. exhausted the available options to them. And and this is usually one of their, if not their last resort. Yeah. So they're all sad stories. You know, it's not, sometimes it's not baby loss. It might be, um, you know, the intended mum has had cancer and had to have a hysterectomy or, you know, it's there's all sorts of things. Yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah, it's not just fertility issues. It's all sorts of things, but yeah. everyone has their own sad story. So, yeah, it's it's still not a short process. So I am, what am I now, about almost a year and a half in, okay. um, and my surrogate is currently almost 21 weeks pregnant. Are you getting nervous to in the lead up to the 22 weeks? Uh, Even though I'm actually not too bad. Um, I'm excited to surpass it. And I, she's even said to me, Shirley, she said, like 23 weeks for you is going to be a really, really big deal. And like yeah. it's, a, it's like a life changing moment because it's the time that I shift from my experience to um, uncharted territory. I've never been in mm. that range I don't know what any of that is that's all foreign to me yeah. uh, but it hasn't been without um challenge already so my surrogate we had our first we got really we did a double embryo transfer we put in um a great embryo and a 
pretty average embryo because the plan was never to have twins. Mm. The plan was one healthy baby, but it's about, I think it was about six grand a month to do a transfer, um, pay the surrogate. And I was sort of like, there's so many things to consider. If you do three transfers and they don't take, or they take and then don't, uh, become viable, like a viable pregnancy, as in like you do betas and they you get a chemical pregnancy, yep. the surrogate can quit the program. If okay. the surrogate quits the program, you're back to the start. You've got to get a new court date. You've got to get a new contract. You've got to get, which is oh, I had okay. to pay, what was it? Uh, I think it was about forty or $50,000 to lodge in court. Wow. Yeah. So <laughs> the surrogate leaving is dire you're back yeah. to square one right now bear in mind at this time as well around around all this going on the war in ukraine has taken off mm. now ukraine is one of the most common countries for westerners to do surrogacy so ukraine's now been shut up um, and ceased services for a period of time so all the people who were either midway through ukraine or partway through ukraine or looking at Ukraine, planning to go, cannot. So they've all had to go other places. So, you know, I had only maybe a couple of months from signing on to things starting to move, and now it's like a six to 12-month wait just to onboard with a clinic, let alone get a court date, because Greece has so many people wanting to sign up. Yeah, been an influx. All this weighing in your mind when you're doing your transfer, if I lost the surrogate and I had to go back to the start, like not only am I out truckloads of money, but mm. I'm adding like years onto the process. Yeah. So for that reason, because I know a lot of people will probably judge me about putting in two embryos, um, but I put in two because I don't have unlimited money either. I can't just, even if she doesn't quit the program, I only keep paying to do cycle after cycle after cycle after cycle. That all costs money. Yeah. Um, and the contract, the 150 grand is like an average case. It's not, if you keep trying, those cycles are on top of your 150 right, okay. investment. Yeah. So it's just your average yeah, journey. Yeah, it's like your baseline and then it just costs go up from there. Yeah, once you deviate from the plan, it's all mm. extra money, you yeah. know, and I'm, I'm like preparing for 150. They actually told me originally 120 and when I started speaking to other people, I was like, we'll round it up. So I felt comfortable that that was suitable for an average, an average journey. Yeah. Um, so we did our double. We got out. Our beaters were beautiful. She blew them out of the water every time. I was just so happy. And, in fact, by the time we did the third beater, I actually went, now I'm starting to get nervous that it's twins because the rise was just so beautiful. Yeah. Too beautiful. <laughs> Um, we have our first scan. There's one baby. Yes, we're like, there's one baby. That's so great. That's great. A couple of people were like, no, I thought there would have been two. And I'm like, yeah, I was a little bit worried about a two, but there's only one. We're sweet. Um, we do a scan the next week, and Grace contacts me and says, Oh, um, are you at home? And I'm like, Yeah. And they're like, Can we give you a call? And I'm like, Yeah. And I just thought, you're kidding me. We're already miscarrying. We're like a week in. Yeah. What the, like, I was just so concerned. I just thought, I can't believe we're not even 
getting going and we're finished. Mm. Um, and then she sent me to a video and it, we communicate by WhatsApp. Right. And it was schooling, taking a while to download. But I know what I saw and I saw two sacks. <laughs> so whilst it's schooling, I'm like, Shirley, do I see two sacks? And she's like, yes. And I'm like, Shirley, is there two babies? And she's like, yes. Aww. And I just went, and like, I know, but I went, how did this happen? There was one last week. <laughs> like, however, week one, there's one. Week two, there's two. And I actually said, Shirley, if you ring me next week and tell me it's triplets, I'm tapping out and I'm done. Like, I can't look <laughs> after three babies. Like, this is so ridiculous. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, there's twins. There's two. Amazing. Yeah. And look, I did, as I did last time, I had my meltdown. Mm-hmm. Um. Because obviously there's financial contractual obligations of twins. Twins are more expensive. Twins and um, triplets are much more expensive than a singleton. Um, Then there's NICU. So NICU in Greece is $500 per baby per day. Right. Okay. On top of your investment. Yes. So let's say if the twins happen to be born at 30 weeks, my NICU bill would be about $100,000. Okay. Costs are adding up now. And then you're thinking yeah. as well, instead of being over there for a couple of weeks to pick up my baby, I'm going to have to then be, be for four months or whatever. Yeah. So that was where my head went. And I was just like, this is, this is way out of my financial abilities. Mm. So that part was very concerning, um, you know, but there's two babies, they're healthy. We just, you know. I, I melted down and then started to sort of come back and process and went, okay, I need to figure out a way to manage this. Yeah. You know, I need to figure out a way to find the extra money. I live in a small unit. I moved into a small unit to be able to afford surrogacy to cut my costs. But if there's two babies, I have to move into a bigger house. I can't live here with two babies. Yeah. So all that stuff starts running through your mind. And then we had the news, I think it was about nine or ten weeks, uh, they messaged me and said, we think we might lose twin A. Twin A's heart rate is low. Okay. And I tell you, it's just amazing. Like I had gone into, I would almost say a bit depressed. I was very concerned about how I would manage financially and physically two babies yeah. when I was in the shock sort of stage. Yeah. I came out of it and then we're talking about the fact that twin A is probably going to die. And I just felt so guilty because a couple of weeks earlier, I was essentially complaining Mm. that I had two babies. As much as I had those concerns and fears and stresses, the initial thought that I had when I found myself in this position was I didn't want any of them to die. Yeah, of course. I was petrified about taking care of them and financing them. Yeah. But I certainly didn't want either of them to die. So it kind of shocked me back into being on the right road. And, um, yeah, then it was all about how we're going. So we had to have extra monitoring and the heart rate started to creep up a little bit. So they were a bit happier and we kicked along through the weeks. Things are going well. They're both growing at the right size, which is great. 
Um, they're yeah. fraternal, so they're not in the same sack like my previous experience. They're completely separate, which is the best kind to have from a risk perspective. Yeah. They're looking good. Uh, then we, the constantly though, twin A's heart rate is always significantly lower than twin B's. Okay. Mm -hmm. But there was varying levels of, as in the rate is concerningly low or the rate is low. Yeah. We kind of floated around that. Mm -hmm. um, and then what was it? Probably, I think it was about 15 weeks. We had a scan and then they contacted me and said, okay, so twin A, who I still don't know the genders at this point, is um, has heart arrhythmia. The baby's heart skips a beat. So they sent through the scan. I've never seen anything like it in my life. You know how you see the the rise and fall? Yeah. Um, you can literally see it rises, it falls, and then it's just gone. And then it comes back. Like it's a whole gap. Right, okay, like yeah. Real, a real gap every time in the same spot. Yeah. Um, it's crazy to see. Um, so they said, look, it's not nothing to be worried about. Um, and it explains why we've had issues with the rate. Um, we're going to send Nana, my surrogate, to a fetal cardiologist so he can have a look at the chambers of the heart and, you know, sort of check if it's like just a murmur or if it's like perhaps related to a congenital heart defect or something. Sure. So that was very stressful. She goes to, it was a couple of days later, she went to the fetal cardiologist. We got a report back just saying, no, it's definitely arrhythmia. Um, it's not life threatening. Um, you know, I can see no congenital defects. It'll either sort itself out in utero or sometimes even babies are born with it and then by the time they're one or two, they just grow out of it. Yeah, but plenty okay. of people started coming forward saying, had exactly the same thing, baby's fine. Mm. So I was like, okay, okay. I'm really? starting to, yeah, I'm starting the, the elevated levels are starting to sort of decrease and I'm like, okay, maybe this isn't, because, you know, all the pregnancies I've had, I've never had an experience with a fetal cardiologist and I kind of lost it a bit at that. I was like, this is mm. like, I don't know what this is and this is extremely scary Yeah. and I can't do anything. She's on the other side of the world. Yeah. So, you know, I'm living and dying by what, what I'm getting told on WhatsApp with a massive time delay. Like they're messaging you at nighttime, you know, when you're in bed. Mm. So it's just, it's a very different scenario. You must be absolutely um, glued to your phone. Oh, just <laughs> until this point too, that's one thing I noticed once things started to turn is that um, until this point I was always like, oh, my gosh, the, you know, Friday we get to see the babies, yay. The WhatsApp tone for me was just pure joy. Like I was always yeah. so happy and so yeah. excited to hear from them. Um, and then obviously when things started to turn, I would like hate the sound and it was very stressful and worrisome. Mm. So, um, but yeah, that was a good result. Um, he said it's fine. We had another scan. There was no sign of the arrhythmia. Okay. So we're like, we're good. Maybe it's gone. I actually said when they said that, I said, oh, could it come back? And they said, yeah, but if it does, it shouldn't be an issue. Okay. So I was like, okay. I honestly was at the point where I believed we were okay. So that stage were about 17 weeks. Mm -hmm. um, and I was like, we're okay. And then uh, one night I went to bed. Um, I put my phone on airplane mode when I go to bed. 
um, that I did that night. And I went earlier because the messages started coming through about, I think it was about 12.31, but mm. I was asleep and the phone was on airplane mode. Any other given night, I would be awake at that time. This night I was tired and I wasn't. I woke up in the morning and Saturday and I needed to go to the toilet about 6 a.m., which was hectically early for me. Um, I got up, had a wee, went back to bed, and I thought, I'm just going to turn on my phone and see if there's any news from Greece. Mm. And I did. And the phone was just ding, 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 mm. subsequent messages. And yeah. I was like, mm, some, she sends through sometimes two or three videos. She'll have a chat. So I still, at this point, wasn't caught anyone that we had to um, and then I looked at the phone and I could see, I think it was seven messages and WhatsApp like sits them all on top of each other. And all I could see was the most recent, which said, I contacted your friend because you're going to need support at this time. Oh. Now in between, sorry, I've skipped over a little bit. In between now and the heart arrhythmia, we found out the genesis of the babies. Right. So Year's Eve, um, I had a gender reveal and twin A is a girl, twin B is a boy. So I've gone from not knowing to now I know I've got one of each. Yeah. I didn't know at that point which one was which though. Okay. Um, yeah. So I read the messages from Greece and I just was like, oh, God. Um, I start going through the other ones and it says, I'm really sorry, um, but your little girl has gone to be the rest of your babies and she's passed away. Her little heart has stopped. So the reason Grace had my friend's number was because I didn't want to know the genders. She was organising the gender reveal, so I said, you send the information to Eleni. Yeah. Um, so I was so appreciative of that. Um, I rang Eleni straight away. It was 6 a.m. in the morning. She was still asleep, but she heard her phone vibrate. And she came, picked up the phone and rang me straight back. And I just said, Eleni, and she was like, I know, I've seen the messages. I've just seen the messages. Mm. And we literally spent, I think it was about three or four hours on the phone with Greece, just trying to talk and understand and process. And Because then we found ourselves in this really concerning position where apparently the surrogate Nana's body becomes aware that one of the twins has died and will start to have contractions, etc. So it's like, oh, okay, it's entirely possible that she could go into labour and he could be born as well. Mm. So they put bed rest, um, they gave her progesterone, they did all these things to try and ensure that labour would be stopped. And they did say, you know, it's it's a it's a very concerning period. But they were hopeful that the gestation would be helpful because um, if it happens sort of 20, 21, 22, the risk of just going into labour is is higher. Yeah, so okay. they were really hoping that the gestation would be our saving grace Yeah. Um, and that we could, you know, salvage the situation. So they sort of said it was about two weeks that we had to, um, to get through. And that two weeks was like, it felt like forever, honestly. Yeah. Like I was just, every time my phone went, I was just petrified waiting for it to all fall over because this is the other thing. If something happens at this point, I don't get my money back. Mm. I, you know, she's pregnant. They've 
essentially like you know they fulfilled their contract obligations it's really sad that the baby or babies have passed away but it's not their fault yeah so there's so much money invested in this process and I know like people sort of think like it's not right to talk about money but this is this is a massive amount of money yeah and I invested it knowing the risks but I also invested it and I think this was the first time that I said I knew that I could pay all this money and not come home with a baby, but I really didn't entertain that thought. Mm. I couldn't give it airtime. No. Because I was just like, I need to know that that exists, but not focus on that. I, I just couldn't because it just made me feel sick that it's so much money that I'm, you know, breaking myself to do it and that I could still end up with nothing. Yeah. I'd, you know, and so then I suddenly went from, Oh my god! I'm having I'm watching twin videos on Instagram and how cute are twins and this is going to be amazing and it's a boy and a girl and life's just yeah. perfect. To the girls died and the boy could die too, and I just was like, I've gone from two for one to you could end up with none. It was just horrible. Yeah. But you know, we cleared the two weeks and uh, this Friday we're 21 weeks. So. He's still growing like a twin, so he's small. Yeah. Um, he's, you know, and I have a whole lot of concerns and worries around Niku and when he will arrive because it's not a given that a surviving twin will make it to term. Like they, yeah. it's varied as to what you get. So I yeah. have no idea what's going to happen. Um, they're hoping we can get it to 37 weeks and do a C-section, but and that's what we're working towards. So. I was on the phone with a travel agent today talking about booking flights because um, we have to plan for something. Yeah. But there's no guarantee whatsoever that that is going to be where we're going to land. So it's all very unpredictable right now, but we're still in the game. I'm so happy to hear that. It must have just been so out of the realm of possibility to lose another baby. I have said many things about this, but I just thought it was like the path of destruction and loss that I have endured was all because of me and I truly thought that by um, removing myself from the equation I know there's no safe zone in pregnancy but I just I thought that by by taking me out of the equation that we would get a different outcome yeah and even with heart issues I just well, we'd come out the other side though. And I was like, we're okay. Yeah. I, and again, I know people will sort of go, how can I'm like, they said we were okay. They said we were good. They said yeah. it wasn't life threatening. I, it had gone from the, the, the concern and the worry of her dying was gone. Mm. I, I can 100% when I opened that, those messages that morning, it was not even on my radar. Yeah. That's like, such a shock. Oh, just unbelievable unbelievable and you're just like how how does this keep happening how it's probably the first time in my life that I sort of went I've never bought into the theory that just because your fertility journey is hard that you shouldn't be a mother and I know there's a lot of graphics and stuff that go around saying maybe I wasn't meant to be a mum mm. I, I don't know I never bought into it until that moment when I was like is this just like the universe telling me that I, I need to stop? This is not what I should be doing. Like, 
you know, at this stage, we're talking 14 babies, 14 pregnancies and babies that have been lost or have died. That's ridiculous. It's incomprehensible. <laughs> ridiculous. Yeah. So, I don't know. I don't know. But I'm, I'm glad that we're still here. I would like, I say I'm not concerned about the future, but I'm, I'm incredibly, and as much as it's a lot of money and all that sort of stuff, I'm grateful to have the opportunity and I'm really glad that we are still, you know, in, in, in the game. In yeah. 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 Will they do an autopsy on your daughter at birth? I'm not sure, to be honest, because apparently they kind of sometimes mummify a bit, so I'm not sure, like, oh, okay. what she, yeah, what she will be. Like, I was actually talking to someone about this today because they sort of said, are you going to bring her home? And I'm like, well, I hope so. But I will have to talk to the airline about how does that work? Mm. I don't even know because I'm not sure if she, like, is sort of, there's a special term for it, I can't remember what it's called, but if that has happened, yeah. how, do I, how do I bring her home? Because I would normally get her cremated and I have urns for the other the babies that were still born um, here at my home. So I would yeah. like her to have the same. Yeah, of course. So that's all stuff that I have to get figure out. Yeah. But if there's any option to do so, I would definitely be opting to find a way to bring her home. And, yeah, because she's, you know, she's, he's a twin, she's a twin. There's yeah. still twins. Yeah. Oh, you've been through so much. And I'm so happy you've still got a little baby boy growing in there. Thank you, me too. How are you coping with not, like, physically being there for the pregnancy? It's hard. Yeah. Like, you literally live and die by WhatsApp. Yeah. It's everything. Yeah. Um, you know, and just even, even when you're going through IVF and stuff with them, like, the two-week wait, it's so different. Everything is so different. Um, the clinic are really great and they communicate really well. They're really responsive. Um, I don't get to speak to Nana, but she's on all the videos and they have her talk, not a lot, but yeah. she'll be like, hi, how are you, you know, like at the end of the video. Or um, So they obviously do this a lot. They're really good at it. They, they do a great job at keeping you well-informed, um, you know, alleviating concerns, managing things um I can't speak highly enough about how they engage and manage the process yeah um you know I I did ask early on I said does none of know my story and my position mm. and they said she does you know like yes she's getting paid to do this she's a mother herself okay. um but I wanted to I guess make it clear that for me this is she's changing my life yeah you know, and I know that I'm paying her to do that, but this is so much more than that for me. Yeah. You know, it's such a big deal. And when our, the baby girl died, um, we had a call, Eleni, my best friend and I, with um, the head obstetrician. Um, and at the end of the call, we fired questions at him and all sorts of stuff. And at the end of the call, Eleni started talking in Greek. Um, and I said, I couldn't understand and he was talking back and I couldn't understand what they were saying. I could hear my name. Yeah. And then she hung up the phone and I said, 
who told him that he needs to keep my son alive, didn't you? And she said, I did. And he said, we're taking Samantha's case very personally and we will do absolutely everything to bring her son home. Like they understand, you know, they've said they see a lot of cases, but they have said mine is probably the worst, as in recurrent loss. Yeah. Um, and they are really prepared to throw everything at it to keep him alive and well and ensure that I get to go and pick him up and bring him home. So, you know, I would implore anyone who feels judgmental about this process because there is a lot of emotions and thoughts in the general public about commercial surrogacy. And I can tell you now, yes, they're getting paid for this service, but, you know, they cried with me when she died. Yeah. It's not just a financial transaction for them. And maybe that's because they are helping women who can't achieve parenthood themselves for whatever reason. So maybe that does make it a, a sort of a deeper um, emotional connection and process for them because they actually care. They they know what they're doing and, what they're, you know, they're truly potentially changing my life and how, um, you know, significant that really is for me. No, I think it's really, it's, regardless of whether they're getting paid or not, it's such a selfless thing to do. And the fact that the criteria is that this is your only option. Yeah. Yeah, it does make a difference for sure. Yeah. I think, you know, it all becomes, it's so real when you start, like, seeing all the contracts and paperwork you have to sign. It talks about what happens if the surrogate dies in labour, you know, like financially what you're responsible for because, you know, let's be honest, Labor is unpredictable and she could die. Like the reality is for some people that will happen. The baby yeah. will die. The surrogate could die. Um, yes, it doesn't happen all the time, but it happens. Yeah. So, you know, I'm like anyone, anyone who puts their life on the line to do this for someone else in my book is and paid or not paid mm-hmm. is an incredibly special person. Yeah. Um, but I think you know, given my experience, I'm like, I would feel bad not paying them. <laughs> it's yes. a massive job. Yeah. Like, I can't imagine not. And I think if you're paying them, like, on a, a value of worth, there's no amount of money that you can give them mm. that makes it worthwhile. Exactly. You know? It's, um, I know it is a very touchy subject or a contentious subject, but as someone who's living it and experiencing it, and I, I'm sure there's places where it is much more focused on a transactional relationship and making money, but my experience of my clinic in Greece is that is not the case. They are as brokenhearted as I. Um, they are as dedicated as I, um, and as is Nana. So when they told her that he had passed away, she needed counselling and support. She was heartbroken. Yeah. Um, you know, and they said that. They said they knew in telling her because they wanted to do that in a structured situation. You know, they had they took the afternoon off. They cleared their schedule so that they could be with her. They arranged for someone to drive her home because she was obviously incredibly upset. Yeah. Um, and the obstetrician said that. He said, our girls, they, they know they're not their children, but they also know how precious and how wanted these babies are and 
the importance of their role. So they are very upset when this sort of thing happens too. Yeah. Um, it sounds really incredible. And the amount of support that they give you, plus the women providing, I don't want to say providing the service, but they're giving you their bodies to grow your baby. Yeah, it's, it is absolutely amazing. They're such yeah. beautiful humans in this world. Yeah. Who are willing to give you the one thing that you that you want. Yeah. Literally every time when I message, as soon as we've, you know, said the baby is this, the baby is that, and I am, how is Nana? Mm. Because I'm so grateful to her. I can't even imagine going to Greece and meeting her, like, pre-delivery. It just... You know, oh, like how so you, yeah. uh, like, we have to make sure we video it, like, you know, keep that memory forever, like, because it's yeah. going to be such an incredible moment. Like, you single-handedly are changing my life. I've yeah. dedicated a decade of my life to this and haven't got remotely close to what you are achieving. So I will be forever grateful, Um, you know, just... I can't, I can't even think about getting on a plane and going to Greece, really, and the realities of that. Like, it just it makes me excited but upset at the same time. Like, it's just so emotional, you know? Yeah, yeah. Every time when I sort of fast forward and think, like, it's really probably going to happen. Will you breathe a massive sigh of relief kind of once you hit that 24-week mark? Yeah, because we did talk about that when we had our um, post- um lost call I was sort of like what gestation does Greece deem viable like what are we talking yeah because I know the rules here in Australia but yeah. everything's very different um and he said 24 25 weeks okay so I will absolutely I mean having a baby born in Greece overseas at 24 25 weeks is not good but no of course I would take that over no baby yeah, of course it's a no-brainer but I would prefer that we you know could get a bit further in and um he could get a bit stronger and healthier and yeah um but as we all know babies work to their own timelines and schedules they do we're just here for the ride and waiting to figure out when when we're all getting off yeah yeah you have to keep me updated with how you go i will i will i I follow your page on facebook yep what's that called again memories of an angel they're so lovely they're so excited the community and so hopeful and when did you start creating that page and building that community about 2016 so after the girls okay four babies in um i became aware that because i'm you know searching up late at night looking for things and information and i became aware that there was a pregnancy in a gloss ribbon i think it's none there was nothing in australia nothing it was all in the UK or US and it was literally I was in between jobs I'd been retrenched I had about five eight hundred bucks left over and I said to Paul I'm gonna buy a bit of stuff and ship it in so it's here in Australia for people yeah he was like really and I went yep and I did and that was yeah how many years ago and now it's much bigger scale much bigger scale um yeah it's incredible I'm very proud of the incredible community that it has become even you know if I'm not able to be present on there all the time because I also work full-time and you know doing surrogacy and the 
the members of that community are so nurturing and kind and supportive, not just to me, but to each other. Mm. Um, it's it's amazing. It's yeah. one of, if not the best thing to come out of my horrible, horrible situation. No, that's beautiful. I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes as well for people to check out, which I highly recommend people do because I've had a a good look through and I can see the support and the love of your community and how they support you and they're very excited I have to say yeah and it's doing it as a single woman it's a it's quite an isolating experience like if good things happen or bad things happen other than my friend or like who do you call you know and so for me it's a great outlet to be able to talk to them Mm. they're very smart and knowledgeable because a lot of them have experienced different things Mm. um you know there's plenty of people on there that have twinless twin mums or um you know have had congenital heart defect all these things like yeah so they're so valuable in regards to you know information and support and not just to me to each other yeah um yeah I'm so so grateful I and just their excitement around everything it's it's beautiful it's really honestly you deserve all the happiness you deserve your happy ending with your little bubba it just must feel so surreal and I know it's it's probably even once he's home with you it's not going to feel real for such a long time yeah I still I think I'm still I'm still very apprehensive given the loss of twin A um, who I decided to call baby Grace you'll see that I refer to her as baby Grace now um Grace has always been my favorite girl name so it's given um yeah I'm still very apprehensive about feeling the joy and getting excited because you know we're in a you know we're not in a bad position but we're not you know if something was to go right now it's too early you know mm, not right. still not so, quite in that safe zone yet yeah yeah so I think but to be honest I you know I said I'm literally holding my breath the whole time and I think yeah. I won't really relax until I'm in Greece and he's here and he's alive and he's well and then I will be like okay you know, um, yeah. I also said, I'm like, what do you, what do, what do I do? I have literally spent 10 years of my life fighting to get pregnant, fighting to stay pregnant, fighting to keep a baby alive, fighting to keep my relationship alive. And I'm like, I honestly can't truly fathom a time where I have a baby who's alive and well. I'm like, what do I do with my life then? I be a mum. Yeah, you be a mum and he's going to keep you busy and on your toes. <laughs> well, it's just, I don't know, it's hard for me to imagine given my position and where I've been. It's just been so much. So I'm like all that is, um, you know, hopefully yet to come. Yeah. Oh, I cannot wait to hear the news. <laughs> I really can't. I'm getting excited for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's yeah. a beautiful amongst the the fear and the the worry yeah look I can only imagine how scared and anxious you must feel around it like honestly you've been through more than I've heard anyone ever go through and you are still standing to tell the tale and it's a real credit to you you've done really really well to to keep going keep yourself afloat and have still such an optimistic outlook on life and yeah I'm you know it's taught me resilience. I'm a lot more resilient than I thought I was. Yeah. That doesn't mean I break down and I have my moment and I fall apart and then I pick myself up after a couple of days and I'm like, okay, 
you need to figure out what you're doing now. Yeah. Like, you know, I've never been, you know, in a position of luxury where I can fall apart and just, you know, like let it consume me and, and take over. I'm like, mm. I have a mortgage. I have bills. If I don't go to work, I don't get paid and I can't pay for my house and I can't pay for fertility treatments and I can't yeah. pursue surrogacy. So yeah. I had to keep level-headed and grieve and manage my grief and then find a way to get back on the horse, so to speak, or figure out what the next pathway was because, you know, that's the only way that I had a shot at getting there. It's, yeah, to think I just, yeah, it blows my mind to be like, you won't have to fight for it. It'll be here. And I can't even imagine those days, you know. Yeah, yeah, it would be so surreal. Absolutely. Just even like bringing him home. Like, because then Lenny and I have been talking at the moment. She's like, I can't stay for the whole time. I don't have enough leave do you want me to do flying to Greece mm. and his birth or do you want me to do flying home and bringing him home yeah and I was like really thought about it what do you want to do and she's like well and I'm like I just assumed you didn't want to be there for the birth and she was like I do I want to be there for it all but she goes bringing him home is like a real moment mm. like you're bringing home your first and only baby yeah you know like She's already organised um, for her family. They said no matter when it is, they will be at the airport waiting for us with her, with, with her if she was at the start of the process yeah. or her and I coming off the plane with him if she's at the conclusion of the process to welcome us home. I'm just oh, like... Beautiful. It's how long it's all been happening, you know, and she is... People have come and gone in my life, but she has been there every step of the way yeah. she's just an incredible person I'm so grateful for her um yeah just she's a very special friend no, so a lot of people, that you've got someone like that in your life oh yeah even Grace when they were chatting to her said um not a lot of people would stay around continued sadness for this period of time like they would find it quite hard mm. You know, and I'd never really thought about that before. She's just my friend and she's always been there. But, you know, obviously this impacts her too. You know, she's held my babies that have been stillborn. Like she, you know, it, it definitely has impacts on her too. So, you know, I'm just, I'm so, so grateful. So grateful. Just, you know, to have her involved in any part of the process is really special. Yeah. And the fact that she's going to go over with you, no matter at what time frame that is like that's going to be so special that she can be there and experience it with you yeah like she doesn't have leave either so she'll you know she's just incredible yeah really but you know I have other friends who uh have offered to do the other leg as well you know so it's um it's I'm, I'm really grateful to anyone who is you know willing to assist because it's big it's big to be like I'm going to be over in a in a European country where I don't speak the language for six to eight weeks with a newborn baby when I've never flown to Europe before, I've never changed a nappy before. Like, it's all a bit hectic, really. Yeah, honestly, I can't even imagine what the flight home's going to be like with a newborn. Like, hopefully he just sleeps most of the way. <laughs> how, many, the- like, how old does he have to be before you're allowed to fly home? I don't know. Someone asked me that today. Yeah. But obviously it's permitted because I'm not the first person doing it so um there's plenty of ladies and couples that have come back with them so obviously you know like 
it's normally they said um, about five weeks ish post birth. So some ladies were like five weeks, others, you know, it took longer to get their paperwork or whatever. Right. Some they were like nine weeks because you've got to get a birth certificate and then a passport before you can come home. Right. Okay. Do you have to adopt him? No. So when okay. they do the legals, when I paid all that money at the start and my case went to court, the legals were captured as part of that. So okay. any, which is another big pro reason for Greece, mm. um, any babies born out of the process are legally mine from the get-go. Whereas if you do surrogacy in Australia, if you were to use my eggs and carry my baby, but you deliver my baby, mm-hmm. legally you're on the birth certificate as the child's mother and yeah. then I have to lodge a case with court. So it's back backwards. Yeah, you know? it is, yeah. Like, and it increases the risk for, like, you know, if you've carried the baby all that time and then you're like, well, actually, I feel really bonded with the baby and I'm going to keep the baby, mm. you're legally entitled to do so, which right. is why we have, you know, getting to know your periods and because there's a different element of risk. Yeah. Greece, it's a transaction. It's a paid mm. business transaction and it's already established by the courts, you know, six, eight months ago yeah. that whether I have triplets, a singleton, you know, if you go back and do multiple processes, it doesn't matter. They're my children. Yeah. They're legally my children. Yeah. So I found that another big tip. Very Yeah, definitely. Yeah. You know, anything that reduces risk for anything is positive because yeah. it's such a fragile process and you have such little control. Mm. Yeah, You're literally paying a ton of money to someone on the other side of, world, of the world and just being like, putting all your faith in them that they're going to do the right thing by you. Yeah. Person that you don't know. (laughs) Yeah, you put in so much. I feel like I know Shelly now, but I was like, even going over and meeting her, I'm like, I'm just going to burst into tears. Like, it's just. You are, yeah. Indescribable, you know. Like, I think anyone who works in this field has to, she was saying to Lenny the other day, she hasn't had a holiday in like 30 years. And she's like, I just can't because of what I do. Because there's so many women at various stages of the process. Like, how do you leave? If you're my person and you're all I know and you're all I speak with, you can't just up and go. So she's obviously very dedicated to her job. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Like, you know, akin to like any, most of the people who work in these kind of special services, you have to have a big heart and I think you have to be, really connected to the cause because it's such a big commitment if you're happy to i would love to get you back on once you've brought your baby home (laughs) yeah i want to hear the story i want to hear the the birth story and yeah yeah i want to hear everything i would love that that would be so exciting yeah thank you i would love it yeah i can't even i'm just like (laughs) I can't wait. I can't wait. It feels so close but so far at the same time, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like technically it's only really halfway. Well, it's probably less than halfway, but then. Yeah. um, But you're just like there's so much that could go wrong between now and then, you know. Um, Yeah. It's so hard not to think that way. I just. I just flip-flop. Some days I'm like, I'm feeling really good. We had a good scan. He's looking great. And then other days I'm just like, it's a long way to go. It's so much money. If this doesn't work, I can't afford to do it again, mm. you know. 
Mm, I think that's completely understandable and expected. That's one thing I want. I do want to communicate through this is that I am very grateful. Like I know that I know many women and families who would love to be able to do what I'm doing, um, but just can't afford it. Yeah. Um, and my heart breaks for anyone who finds themselves in a position where they can't pursue treatments or, um, you know, options mm. because they can't afford it. It's it's so sad that anything in this realm comes down to money. Yeah, 100%. It's so sad and it's yeah. so unfair. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm pushing myself to the absolute brink to be able to make it work. I really am. Mm. And if it doesn't work, you know, like I would have to sell my house and I don't even know now that the house has dropped out of the property market if I would have enough equity to go again by the time I'd pay the lawyer's fees and stuff for my house. I don't have yeah. a massive house. It's a two-bedroom townhouse. Yeah. So, you know, it's like it's absolutely not lost on me how significant the investment in this process is. Mm. Um and I also want to make sure that I, that I don't come across as like everyone has their own threshold and it's okay to say I don't want to throw $150,000 at it. Yeah, Do you know what I mean? Everyone yeah. is so different and I know people that have called it at different points. You know, I know a woman who had a loss at eight weeks and has never tried again since because she was just absolutely destroyed by that loss and it's yeah. it's such a personal thing and yes I have kept picking myself up and going back and back and back but I fully appreciate that everyone else's approach is not the same it's such a personal thing yeah, it really and whatever feels right for you is right for you if that's going again go again yeah. if that's stopping because you can't face another loss then you stop if that's taking money out of your super because you want to do one more round of IVF you do it you have to live with the consequences um, and no one else. So I think you have to do what your heart, what what is right in your heart, you know, whether that's... Have you faced any criticism for the journey that you're taking? Yeah, there's a bit of, there's a bit of um, judgment out there. Not too much on my page, but there is a bit. I've had a few people say, I can't, I'm not going to keep following you. I can't understand, like, this. someone else is caring for you. It's not your, yeah. Hmm. Um, but then I've had previous stuff when I've had other articles written on me about my journey pre-surrogacy, like people are just straight out terrible. One was like, there was like one that was like, when are you going to understand you're not meant to be a mum and stop killing babies? Oh, God. You're a baby murderer. Wow. Yep. That okay. Channel 7 did a whole article on that because like there was just, there was so much love, but there was also a lot of hate. I don't know where people get off thinking that they can say something like that to another person, especially as you're a grieving mother. Mm -hmm. I'm like, just spend two minutes sitting with someone who's fighting to keep a baby in their uterus and keep it alive, and you will understand that there is not a fibre of their being that is not committed to you beg, you plea, you pray, even if you're not religious, to you will commit to anything. If you can save that baby. Yeah. It's like a bargaining process, right? I'll do this, I'll do that, I'll give this, I'll never. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Anything, everything, whatever you can offer, you will offer because mm. the primary focus is that that baby lives and is healthy. Yeah. 
it's just such an ignorant uh, view, but it is definitely one that is there, you know, and that's why I just I think talking is important and trying to educate people to understand, um, you know, not everyone is blessed with an amazing fertility journey. In fact, lots of people are not. Exactly. And, you know, um, the more we talk and normalise the conversation around assisted reproductive technology and infertility, you know, polycystic ovaries and endometriosis, you know, miscarriage and stillbirth, all these things, the greater chance that I think, you know, we'll be better placed as a society to start supporting people because no one knows until it happens to them or very few people they have i had no idea about ivf um i had no idea about how frequently um you know miscarriages occurred or how many people have stillborns like until i was thrust into that world yeah and most people are the same unless they've got like a sister or a um you know a cousin or something that they're very close to that may have walked a path otherwise they just they know nothing you know so that's when I think these sort of things and talking is really, really important. Yeah. Yeah. The more we share, the more of an impact that it is going to make. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Okay. So just a little update for where Samantha is at as of today, because as I said, that episode was recorded back in February and I needed to have that break in between. You guys know the backstory um so we're now towards the end of june and her son is 37 weeks and as this episode is being released she would hopefully have landed in greece but she's definitely on her way there and yeah so she's going to be bringing her boy home very very soon which is just such amazing news like it's been such a journey for her I couldn't believe it when I was talking to her and I was thinking the other day that um, there's this quote that says you were given this life because you were strong enough to live it and with everything that Samantha has been through like she is just the epitome of that quote like how she's still standing after everything she's been through I don't know like I don't know that if I'd been through the same that I could get through it and be thriving Um, I know that she's obviously had a really really tough days but to see where she is today and that she's on her way to meet her little boy and you know the her surrogate and the team that brought it all to life like it's it's indescribable and I'm so so happy for her and um I'll try and get some photos and an update and I'll update the page on Instagram. So, yeah, hope you guys enjoyed that. Um, Sounds weird to say. I hope you enjoyed it. It was, like I said, it was hard to edit, um, but her journey is also very, very interesting and it just goes to show that, you know, when you're, so determined like she never ever gave up on her goal of being a mother and it's it's paid off and I know that's not the case for everybody and um everybody has their threshold 
of how far that they can push themselves both mentally, emotionally and financially. But yeah, I hope her story really does inspire some hope and yeah, and that we can all celebrate with her uh, when she brings her baby boy back to Australia. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Messy in the Middle. My main goal for creating this podcast is to ensure other women going through the struggles of infertility and baby loss don't feel alone along this very isolating journey. I want to be able to reach as many women as possible. And in order for me to do this, I would really appreciate if you could subscribe and leave a rating and review on iTunes and Spotify. Also, if you have any feedback or suggestions of what you'd like to hear, please get in contact with me through the Messy in the Middle Instagram page. Sending you so much love and strength on your journey to baby.